Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on wortfm.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Good afternoon, Madison. You're listening to WORT. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. This is a public affair. And today we are live on the air in the studio with our police chief, Sean F. Barnes. How you doing today? I'm doing well, doing well. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much for joining us here on WORT. At the beginning of this month, Madison Police Chief Sean Barnes outlined the crime data from last year. We invited him to join us in the studio today to talk about crime trends in Madison what what happened in Madison? What are we what are we seeing? You've been here for about four years. How mm-hmm. did how did last year shake out? How did we do? Uh, we did okay. Um, obviously, you know, we we definitely don't want to take a, a victory lap, but I think that some of the initiatives uh, in partnership with our community, local government, uh, nonprofits, public health really paid off. Uh, I just believe that anything that we focus in on, we can achieve. Uh, I'm one of those people who believe that we're only limited by our imagination. I believe we can do anything if we work together. And so we outlined a list of crimes we wanted to specifically focus on. And those lists came from surveys that we did when we created our strategic plan. And so we started to work on those and we saw some significant decreases in those. Uh, we still have some some work to do. There are some things that uh, we're trying to, to kind of get a handle of on. Uh, things around like domestic violence and things of that nature. But, you know, when I got here, we were seeing um, multiple instances of stolen cars. We've been able to reduce those by double digits. I wanted a 10 percent reduction uh, in stolen vehicles. We had an 18 percent reduction. You know, that doesn't happen without the community um, coming together, listening to us. You know, we're working with uh, the motor companies saying, hey, you guys need to make a better product. Um, we're a part Make of your our, cars harder to steal. Yeah, I, I, that would help out tremendously <laughs> uh, because, you know, you should not be able to see go to YouTube and see, you know, a child show you how to steal a car. I think manufacturers do have some type of of responsibility. I, I remember the, the Ford Pinto thing that maybe um, I'm a little older than you, so you may not remember that. But um, Milton Friedman, I think the great ec- economist, you know, was like, no, Ford, they don't, they don't need to fix that at all. You know, it's only like five or six people dying a year. And I'm like, well, you're an economist for a reason. Yeah. Like, I'm a human being for a reason. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we, we, we've really have uh, worked a lot uh, on that particular project. And we haven't changed our strategy. We haven't changed our pursuit policy. We're still trying to do things in a way that's safe and procedurally just to people and and. I'm just thankful for it. It seems like you've had tremendous success in our community. And and folks, if you have questions for the tree, chief, we want to hear from you. The number is 608-256-2001. We would love to hear your questions about safety and our community um, and what we're doing to make Madison a better place for all people to live. I, I I know you don't want to like celebrate, you know, the the success because there's obviously always more work to do. And at the same time, you've got to be pretty proud um, that you've been able to effectively address some issues that were really defining the climate and the conversation in Madison. How does it how does it feel to be successful in and to to exceed your your expectation to go beyond your goal to say, hey, we want to reduce this by 10 percent we got to an 18% reduction in car theft in this community. Um, How how do you feel about that? Yeah, it definitely feels good um, because, you know, uh, implementing a strategy isn't easy. And so, you know, we implemented uh, Stratify Policing, which is a a crime reduction model. And then we earlier in in my tenure introduced procedural justice and implicit bias training as a customer service because you have to know how to do the job and do it in a way that asks legitimacy to people first before you can ask them for things like putting your car, you know, your garage door down or taking your keys out of your car. But it does feel good because um, in the agency, I I have a very smart agency. I have an agency that really wants to do a great job and we put the strategy together. We did a lot of training about six months and then we launched 
And I think if we had launched a little bit earlier, maybe some of the numbers would have been even better. But since we launched in June, we saw things starting to decrease because the idea is to be focused, to have a tailored approach, to know where we need to be, to be able to measure it. And I think in policing, what we have not done so well is that we come up with a treatment, but we don't know dosage too mm. much. And it looks like over-policing, people feel like they're prisoners in their own neighborhood. Uh, too little and the problem doesn't go away and they feel like you're ignoring them or you're just there for a little while. And so, you know, when I hear chiefs say things like, well, you know, we're stepping up patrols and things of that nature. I, I hope that's true, but I hope there's some consistency to that, too. And I hope that you're also measuring the dosage because that's what we're supposed to do as professionals. Police Chief Barnes, you made it very clear when you came into Madison um, that you wanted to be part of this community, that you really believe in in working together as a collective to make our community safe for all people. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that work has looked like over the course of the last four years? You went from, you know, being new in town um, mm-hmm. to being a, a well-established leader in this community who is also seen as highly effective and skilled at what you do. What does it mean to to work with Madison? What does it mean to collaborate with folks in this community? It means everything to me because um, I've had people who really genuinely wanted to embrace me, embrace my family. And I really love that. You know, since I've been here, you know, I'm I'm a member of a lodge here uh, with uh, Prince Hall uh, Freemasons. Uh, obviously, you know, I'm a member of Cap Officer Fraternity Incorporated, so I'm a member of the Madison Alumni Chapter, and then you get connected to everyone else who's who's here. I'm a member of the NAACP. Um, you know, I've attended almost 10, maybe even 15 different places of worship here. It doesn't matter the, the denomination, but they invite me and say, hey, Chief, you should come by. And I try to make time for that. And, you know, and in my giving, um, my personal giving, I, I like doing that too and supporting people, supporting local businesses. There's some business owners here that I stop by their shop from time to time to see them. But that's one of the things that I really like about Madison. Madison really truly is a welcoming city if if you open yourself up and, and are willing to take the time uh, to be there for people. And so I, I do appreciate that. Um, a lot of times I'm, I am here by myself, so I do appreciate the invitations to to an event or, or, or a fundraiser or, or dinner at someone's house. And I certainly appreciate the hospitality. I feel like that's a really nice thing to hear about who we are as a community, especially because you took on this role at a time when police were not particularly popular um, in the conversation around the Black Lives Matter movement um, and even in the conversation locally around kind of racial disparities and what the presence of police have meant um, for different people in this community, particularly for the black community in Madison. Can you talk a little bit? You've had a lot of success um, in, in addressing, you know, areas of crime, um, in reducing crime and being proactive and preventative. Talk to me a little bit about the work you all are doing to address racial disparities in terms of arrests and incarceration. Yeah, well, the first thing I'll, I will tell you that in, in, you know, in 2020, you know, policing wasn't relatively popular with any person of color, including myself. You know, I came from civilian oversight. I was in civilian oversight for about four months before I came here. And, um, you know, my internal voice or, or, or my God was speaking to me saying that, hey, your work is not done and you've dedicated, you know, 20 plus years of your life to this and, and you know, had worked to study and understand uh, policing and law and you got to get back in there. And um, I had applied for Madison before um, I went to Chicago and things were quiet. I didn't understand what was going on here in Madison. I now know why they didn't want to bring me in until things kind of settled in a little bit. But when I got here, I started trying to understand what people were feeling because that's that you have to start there first. Like, why are people feeling the way they're feeling? And racial disparities was one of those things. Um, my PhD, my PhD dissertation is in racial disparities. And so the first thing you have to understand is how you measure that. And we haven't really clearly uh, come up with the consensus about that. The newspaper measures it one way. Scientists measure it another way. Um, but the people measure it by the eye test or the field test. And if it doesn't feel right to them, if it doesn't look right to them, then they're going to see disparity in that. But we've done um, a lot of things, I think, uh, t- to address that. Uh, number one, um, you know, 
we have a clear and distinct message about when and where we police. And we were speaking earlier, we measure dosage. And we have, they have a meeting with me uh, every month at the end of the month. Uh, I call it an accountability meeting. And we look at where we're policing and what we're doing there. We also are getting better at understanding the different uh, strategies to reduce crime. And some police agencies, maybe even here, you know, years ago, the idea was go somewhere, stop someone, make some arrests. Like we we know that those things have a very limited effect uh, on on particular crime, even even uh, looking at uh, violent crime. You know, there's a small number of people who are responsible for that. And there's a way to do that. Um, when I was in Salisbury in three years, we were able to reduce crime to a 20 year low while also reducing arrests. And there's a way to do that, but it does, in, it does involve understanding and identifying who are the people who need the services the most. And I have some great, um, I think great success stories that don't involve arrests. But one thing that I did find when I got here is that, you know, we did have uh, a public health, um, department, which is kind of different. A lot of departments don't have that. And although they're not under my control, I can't tell them what to do. We give them referrals. And so what we're saying is this is a person that may be moving toward crime. The the Maybe the last thing I'll say, just to be a little more concise, is that the best way to reduce disparities is not to have to arrest people. The best way to not to arrest people is to prevent crime. So if you have a crime prevention strategy, you should see some of the benefits of that, um, unless you have someone that's just <laughs> prolific and, and, and are committing crimes. But when we're telling people that, you know, in order for a crime to occur, you have to have a target. So let's not make ourselves targets. Let's figure out how to put things up so people don't take them. Let's figure out how to make sure that we're guarding our things and, and we have people in place and we're reducing um, the opportunities to break into a business or, or, or what have you. And then um, we understand addiction here, I think, in our department. We have a program called the Madison Area Recovery Initiative, and it is a pre-arrest program. So a lot of times, as you know, you know, sometimes people's behavior is a reflection of um, their substance abuse. And for years in policing, we just took people to jail. I have my, my mother has a lot of uncles, a lot of brothers. I have a lot of uncles and probably almost all of them. Were, have been just as involved at some point um, because of, of alcoholism that was certainly rampant in my family. Um, not a lot of drug addiction, but a lot of alcohol addiction. I did have one uncle who, who struggled with drug addiction, and uh, he committed one crime. He spent five years of his life in prison for his first offense. And since then, obviously, he's, he's a business owner doing doing very well. But my, my story, my family is not unique to the world. And I bring that that worldview, I hope, and I bring those experiences with me uh, in my daily walk as a police chief. I, I appreciate that you said, you know, one of the ways you reduce disparities is to reduce arrests, right, is to reduce the arrest of everybody. Disparities is a, a when we talk about disparities, we're, we're describing a mathematical phenomenon. That's right. So there are really two ways to address it, right? One, you can arrest fewer black people or people of color, or you could arrest more white people, right? Both of those would address disparities. We are having a conversation right now in the United States that I think is unique to this moment in terms of who we arrest and why we arrest people, in part because you were living here in Madison as our police chief when Roe v. Wade was overturned. And Roe v. Wade being overturned made abortion for, for, for a significant period of time in our state's history a felony in this state. Um, Talk to me about why not, why didn't you all arrest people who were having abortions? Why right. Why didn't you all decide that that was a violent crime perpetrated against a child that needed to be reconciled with incarceration? Yeah, well, let me give you a little props first for understanding what a racial disparity is. And it is a mathematical thing. I think a lot of times when people say disparity, they mean disparate treatment. But you're right. It is a mathematical equation. So in any mathematical equation, um, if you want to change things, it's a, a, a frequency, right? If you reduce the frequency, you reduce the risk or either you increase the frequency and you increase the risk. So 
Um, it's not just about not doing something because we can get rid of disparities and a lot of things, I think, in criminal justice just by not doing them. But then would we not be doing our job? But when it comes to the Roe versus Wade thing, this was something that um, I heard early on that this was going to come down. I was actually in Washington, D.C. when this happened. And, um, you know, there were a lot of people talking about this decision is coming down. And in my mind, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I don't think the Supreme Court would do that. Right. Why would they, you know, um, just reverse course? And I was wrong. And um, they put it back on the states, which is kind of interesting because now um, there's an issue with uh, who can be on the ballot to run for president. And they're saying that it's the federal government's decision. I thought it was the states. But anyway, it's um, funny how those, those things change. I right? don't know. I don't know. I'm just, hey, I'm just a, I'm just a cop. That's all <laughs> I, I can tell you. But what I will say is that, you know, it is not the job. It's the job of the police department to protect people. Right. Can we just start there? Can we just start that? It's our responsibility to protect and to serve people. And absolutely. I think, but there are some people who are very vocally believe that part of your role in protecting people and keeping people safe is keeping unborn children safe from abortion. Yeah, that 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 may be true, but it's not my job as a medical professional to tell someone what is or is not um, recommended for them. I, I am. Again, I'm a police officer. I'm not a medical physician. And, you know, can we say that we have had things on the books and laws that we all agreed with? Um, You know, I can tell you specifically that February 1, uh, 1960, four students from my alma mater, North Carolina A&T State University, went to the Woolworth counter in Greensboro uh, to protest segregation. They sat down at that counter and the, um, the Woolworth manager wanted them arrested. The police were called and the police said no. People don't know that part of the story. He actually walked from Woolworth all the way to the police station. The manager did. And the chief at the time was was um, was from um, from Richmond, Chief Calhoun, I believe. And he said, I demand you go down there and you arrest them. And he says, are they doing anything? Are they causing disturbance? And he said, no. He said, well, then I'm not going to arrest them. A lot of people don't know that that happened on the very first day of, of the protest, even though the law said that segregation was illegal. See, I'm from there, right? That's, that's you know, in my DNA. And I know that as police officers, we have a responsibility to everyone and not just the, those who see themselves as being, quote unquote, in power. I greatly appreciate your your answers to that question. I want to continue this conversation in in part because I think we're talking about police discretion. Um, and I think that that is a, a major area to, to focus in on, especially when you're talking about racial dis- disparities and, and the reality of what is legal and illegal versus what people get arrested for. We do have our first caller of the hour. So thank you so much for joining us on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. We're talking to she. she Chief Barnes. How are you doing today, Esty? I am doing okay. Thank you, Ali. Um, And hello, uh, Chief Barnes. Um, I had the misfortune of um, being the victim of three hit and runs in uh, about a year and a half, um, fairly recently. And um, I want to ask you about that because the first one, uh, which was very close to killing me, um, the driver was fleeing the police. The police were, it, it was a police chase, and uh, he was driving at about 100 miles an hour, and luckily I saw him flying towards me and brake just before he hit me, so he just shaved off the front of my car and didn't actually hit me. But uh, I learned late, later that uh, he was fleeing the police because um, he had been torturing his wife, and somehow she was able to call the police, and they came, and he was fleeing. And I was wondering, in that case, why were they chasing him? They knew who he was. They knew where he where he lives. They knew where he works. And by this chase, obviously, they were um, endangering endangering innocent people like. <laughs> You know, it happened to be me. The second one, um, I got the um, license plate of the person who hit the car, which was Justice. And um, I reported it and a a, um, 
an officer was assigned, but when I called to talk to him, he told me that it actually was another officer by the same name down in the downtown office who turned out to be his wife. And then, so that started this wild goose chase for me to figure out. And then weeks later, it went back to him and he finally admitted that it was him and agreed to look for the person and took another couple of weeks before we found out who he was. And several people, it wasn't actually my thought, but several people, um, I just thought that it was ironic that the guy's um, license plate was justice, but several people thought that maybe that means that he is an ex-cop or judge or, you know, someone to do with the system. So. The third one was this huge truck that hit me even though I was honking on my horn. I could see him coming towards me, honking on my horn, and he just hit me and then um, stopped for a minute, showered me with abuse, and then fled. And again, I had to chase him in my broken car and get his license plate. And then I called the police and they said that because I left the scene, <laughs> which was the only way I could get his uh, license plate, they weren't going to come. So to just um, file a, you know, the online form, which I did. And then I called um, to see if, if an officer was assigned and um, I was told by the person who answered me then that the police just doesn't do anything about hit and runs. That there's so many hit and runs that they just don't have time to deal with that. Now, hit and run is a crime. And in the case of number one and number three, um, these are people who might actually kill someone. So I, I just wonder what's what's going on with that and why there is so little help for people who have been in situations. Yeah. Etsy, thank you so much for, for calling us today. If you want to join this conversation, be like Etsy. The number is 608-256-2001. We'd love to hear your questions about safety in Madison, your you know personal stories around what's happened when you've needed the support of the police. We've got the chief here to, to talk to you about, you know, what, what are the standard practices and procedures? What can we expect? Let's talk a little bit about hit and runs. All right. So, Etsy, there was a lot there. And um, I'm going to, first of all, I can only answer based on what you told me because I, I don't know all the facts. I know the facts as you explain them. So I'll try to be as concise so our pursuit policy will only allow us to pursue if someone is uh, uh, dangerous and have committed a felony. So if he has, um, I think you said, uh, assaulted his wife or, or whatever the uh, uh, you described, that would probably be in pursuit if, uh, in policy. Um, the fact that we know who he is doesn't negate the fact that he could return and um, potentially hurt her or harm her. Um, you know, I just wanted to remind folks that I spoke about earlier in the month that, you know, we had um, uh, 10 homicides last year. Forty uh, percent of our homicides were um, were domestic related. Um, our officers responded to over 3000 calls for service that had domestic uh, uh, assault as the category. And we completed 1600 reports in our aggravated assault category. Forty percent of those occur in a home. And they occur about the, around domestic violence. And so that's something that um, we're looking at tremendously this year. Um, it's something that's on my mind and my, and my heart. Um, there's a lot of things I could say about that, but we'll save that for another question. Um, you know, when it comes to, to hit and runs, you know, we, we have one traffic enforcement team. But again, as I spoke about earlier, if you reduce the frequency, you're going to reduce the risk. And so we began the conversation by talking about um, you know, disparities and, and what we see and, and how we do our work. And so we try to do that work in a way that that's even for everyone. Um, you know, try not to chase people if they hit your car, because that could be dangerous. We never know why they didn't stay. They could maybe it's because, you know, um, you know, they're on the way to the hospital to deliver a baby, or maybe it's because they're a dangerous person and they don't want to be seen or apprehended. So, Please consider your safety first. And then the last thing that I'll say is that we do follow up 
on uh, hit and runs. Those are signs. So if, if you're hearing that, um, that's probably a little misinformation or maybe some information was not conveyed uh, clearly. Uh, we sometimes use public space cameras. We have cameras at intersections that are public space that belong to traffic engineering. And sometimes we can use those to track down people uh, if they were involved in a hit and run. We had one fatal hit and run earlier this year out in the Beltline um, where the person left. We were able to solve that case uh, as well and kind of bring some closure to the family that lost someone. And then we have another hit and run fatal where we have the suspect identified um, we're just working with her uh, to get her to turn herself in. She's a little afraid, but I think um, at some point uh, she will turn herself in and we'll be able to clo- give some closure to that family that lost someone as well. Thank you so much for, for speaking to that. I want to dive back into the conversation around discretion, um, sure. in part because I think what I've seen around abortion is is local law enforcement um, say very clearly whether or not they are are willing to prosecute, arrest police um, folks a- around the issue of abortion. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious around uh, the use of marijuana and how discretion impacts who is arrested in our community for the use of marijuana. Um, it's got some of our most some of our greatest disparities are, are represented in in who not uses marijuana, but is who is likely to be incarcerated for an offense related to marijuana. Right. Can you talk a little bit about why arresting young people, particularly young black people for marijuana possession is a priority of the Madison Police Department? Yeah, I don't know if it's a, a priority. Usually there's something else going on there. And so when we look at the the data, you may see arrest for marijuana, but you may not know that there were two or three other things involved in that as well. Um, I'll say that I, I know that for the smaller amounts, the DA is not uh, prosecuting those. So if it's sole source, just, you know, a, a piece of marijuana, we're not arresting for that, to my knowledge. But you also talked about people being incarcerated, like that's another part of the criminal justice system. The DAs can do what, and they do, do whatever they want. The judges can do whatever they want uh, with that particular thing. But I would probably tell you that when you see instances where people are being arrested for marijuana, there are other things that are involved, involved as well. And so whatever their behavior may or may not be, um, it may be associated with that. Now, um, you know, me personally, um, I am not a fan of, of, of any drugs. I, I, I have never done marijuana. I don't say that to impress anyone. I say that because I, my, my grandmother, when I was young, said, you're special and you got to promise me that you'll never do drugs. You'll always be a good student. and You'll take care of your mama. And that is what I always remember until I was about 14. And my cousin had a joint and was like, you going to smoke this? I was like, no, because I'm special. And he was like, you know, grandma tells everybody that, right? Like, so it's like almost crushed me a little bit, but uh, I stuck to those guns and that's just me. You know, I, I, you know, people to each his own, but the truth of the matter is it's usually other behaviors that are involved in that. And that's with almost anything. If people, you know, who overconsume alcohol, you know, you take your bottle of whatever you go in your house, you close your door and you get drunk. No one would ever bother you, but it's the behaviors you know, we see people who are driving um, under the influence. I mean, we see we get people at eight o'clock in the morning who are under the influence of alcohol and have been driving and other things that they may be involved in. It's not just to say, well, we just stop enforcing alcohol. You know, everything will be OK or that's disparate among people who like to drink. No, it's usually the behavior that is associated with it that usually gets someone um, in justice involved. That wouldn't necessarily explain the racialized disparities around who ends up incarcerated for marijuana. So we don't see the same kind of racialized disparities as they relate to drunk driving. Right. Um, as 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 far as I know, there's no data that says um, white people who drink and drive are far more likely to get away with drinking and driving well, than, than fir- black people. But yeah. maybe you're well, educate me. Well, first offense, um, we call it OWI here, is actually a municipal citation, right? And I don't know if the same thing is the same thing for marijuana. Maybe that's something that someone needs to kind of look at. 
But, you know, when it goes to the court system, again, you know, judges and DAs can do whatever it is they think is the right thing to do. But I'm telling you, it's usually some other type behaviors. I don't I look two things that I look at. um, I'm glad you made me think about this when I think about disparities, because I did this in one of one of my studies. I looked at um, because my my hypothesis was sole charges could be related to disparate treatment. Right. And I'm not talking about numbers. I'm talking about um, implicit bias. And so I looked at when an officer arrests someone for like um, resist delay and obstruct. That's a charge that we had down in North Carolina by itself. That probably shouldn't happen. There's probably something else. Why is it that this person's behavior is so offensive to you that this alone makes you just charge them? Like what else is going on there? So I looked at that, and then I also looked at, uh, in my study, um, I looked at um, uh, traffic stops in areas that were predominantly minority, uh, minority, right, or black, however you want to call it. And so I was seeing uh, disparities in areas that were minority, black, but not like on the highway because we have like three or four inter, inter, interstates uh, in North Carolina where you get a lot of traffic stops, but you weren't seeing them there. And what I found was in digging deep, it was the message that was being conveyed from the people who were in charge. So there's a problem in this area. There's a shooting. As I mentioned before, people were saying, go there, do something about that, increase patrol without giving them specific um, information about what to do. So I think there's a lot that kind of goes into it. We cut, we sometimes see the end of the criminal justice funnel and, and look at the beginning. There's a whole lot that's going on in between there that we may or may not have uh, um hold over. And again, we still have to do our jobs. I get, you know, to your questions about the abortion thing, like I got killed on Facebook and social media when I said, hey, I'm not a doctor. My department will not be uh, arresting people, you know, who chooses to go to a doctor. We're not, I'm not going to arrest doctors. And when I say they let me have it, they let me have it. People went on my personal social media pl- pages to send me, and they're not even my friends, so I had to go look for them. I said, like, why do I have all these message requests? And it was people saying some very, very ugly things that I know you don't expect people to say in Madison, right? Everyone's nicer. This is the Midwest. No one would ever say anything bad. But they were saying some stuff to me, uh, quite frankly. Um, let me paraphrase. Uh, do your job better. <laughs> and that's, that's just as polite as I can paraphrase some of the things that came back to me from that decision. I think it's, you know, I think that you have the kind of job that often um, elicits criticism. It's unlikely that people, when, when things are going well, I think people take it for granted pretty easily. That's an expectation. We want to live in a safe community. That's your job. You're, you know, but when things are going poorly, um, I think that there's a lot of heat. There's a lot of blame. And and I, I wonder how you manage and, and balance that. And if that is something you knew getting into this job, you knew that this job was going to come with people who were very critical of the way you act as a leader um, and inform the work of our police department. Allie, you're trying to break me down. You got, is this why there's <laughs> tissues right here? Are you trying to break me down? It's just your Oprah moment because you know, you're about to get me right now. I, you know, we're not afraid to cry <laughs> on the air around here. I, I cried a couple weeks ago. It was all Jade's fault, but we love her for it. <laughs> no, I, I knew that there would be criticism. I was very well, very well aware of Madison. Um, again, my mother's brother, my uncle lives here, and I've got cousins who live here and, and family. So I was well aware um, but there are days where it comes from everywhere. It comes from internal chief. This is what we're used to. We don't want to do something different when it comes from external, you know, chief, you know, do your job better. Um, when it comes from um, politicians who, you know, who want more information and they can't wait for you to give it to them. Um, it's been, you know, personal attacks and things. I can tell you about some emails that I received on week one with words that we're not going to repeat here today. But um, because I study leadership and and I love leadership, I think what's important to me and what's important to me is the legacy that I leave for my children. And so when people criticize me or when, 
you know, people take to social media to say things and, and, and use ugly words, I think about what example am I going to set for them? And that's what kind of keeps me calm and keeps me uh, in a good place because I don't want to have anything recorded that is going to embarrass them. And that's just kind of how I look at it. Uh, my faith is very important to me. I understand that, you know, people have different views about that, but I will never waver in the fact that I think my faith has, has helped me out uh, tremendously. And, um, you know, when all else fails, um, I know I believe I have someone in heaven uh, and my grandmother that I mentioned earlier who is looking out for me. And so that makes me it makes me feel good. I, I think that's a, a beautiful way to talk about kind of the overwhelming presence of of critique that you can experience and what that what that does to you as a person. I think we all want to be in, affirmed in what we're doing. We all, all want to think we're doing a good job and we're doing it for the right reasons. Um, and I think it would be impossible not to take seriously um, when people speak out uh, against a decision you've made or speak out against your leadership style. Uh, I think it's it's nice to hear you know, a level of humility and thoughtfulness from the chief of police around, one, how challenging that is, um, but also the the tools that you have leveraged to cope with it. If you are just joining us, we are so lucky to be on the air with Chief Sean Barnes, who is Madison's police department chief, and he has been in that role since he was hired by the Police and Fire Commission in February of 2021. Previously, he worked as the Director of Training and Professional Development for the Civilian Officer Office of Police Accountability in Chicago. In 2015, Chief Barnes was named a lead scholar by the National Institute of Justice for using innovative technology to reduce crime. It was just announced that Chief Barnes will be inducted to the Evidence-Based Policing Hall of Fame this summer. We have our second caller of the hour on the air. How are you doing today? Good. Do you have a question for the chief? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, thanks for uh, participating in this, chief. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, comment first. I used to work at the Dane County Coliseum directing traffic out there and one afternoon I, I uh, had, or the whole day during the uh, broadfest, I got to work with uh, one of the Dane County sheriffs uh, at the front directing traffic. And, and so I understand uh, because of some of the comments people made to him as they came by, I understand how tough your job really is. Uh, the public uh, doesn't uh, seem to have a lot of respect for police officers sometimes, and so uh, uh, respect that you're uh, uh, can handle such a uh, tough job like this. Um, the question I had was uh, I passed by uh, an accident uh, in Madison last week, um, and uh, two of the lanes of the three lanes had to be blocked off, so there were, I think there were about four police officers there in a huge line of traffic trying to kind of narrow themselves down to get through the one lane. Um, and then when I got up to that accident, of course, everybody's kind of rubbernecking looking at the uh, what happened, um, uh, coming close to causing accidents again themselves. Uh, but I noticed all the police officers were just standing there. They were all talking. Uh, do you train your guys to do uh, traffic direction and stuff when there's an accident like that? It seems like most of the accidents and stuff that have gone by, there's really there's police there, but there's nobody directing traffic. And I wonder if that's something that you... Uh, uh, try and train them to do, or or if there's a reason why they don't direct traffic when there's an accident. Yeah, well, I, I tried to implement a strict no talking at work policy. It did not work out <laughs> so well. Cops like to talk. Um, no, I, I I think for traffic direction uh, during accidents, you know, that's something that we train in the academy. If we see a need, we can do that in in service as well. Uh, usually if it's on the highway or the belt line and we can get a truck out there with the arrow to kind of move people, we sometimes over assume that people know how to follow those cones correctly, but sometimes it's good to get out there and do it with your hand or, or use your, um, uh, use your flashlight if it's, if it's low light conditions, but that's what we expect. A lot of times, you know, once it's under control, the officers will figure out what, what they're going to do next, who's going to do 
uh, who's going to be the lucky person to have to do the accident report and uh, who's going to go back uh, to their zone. Um, but, but you know, a small snapshot in time may not have been the entire duration of what the officers have, have done out there uh, on the wreck. But, yes, they're supposed to be uh, directing traffic unless they believe that they can figure it out. For example, if you came to a four-way stop and the lights were not working or flashing, you know, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to treat it as what? A four-way stop, right? That doesn't require a police officer to have to tell you to do that. So there are some things that, you know, we, we may be making assumptions. And remember, we're in Madison. This is the smartest city in America, more PhDs per capita than any other city uh, in America. But I, I believe I have faith and confidence in, in my community that we can figure it out. I, I greatly appreciate that. And I think that that almost demonstrates kind of the difference people have in terms of the expectations of, of the police. Yes. When yes. I see an accident, I don't actually usually think about whether or not a police should be helping traffic move along. My my hope is that if someone is hurt, that they are getting the help that they need as, as quickly as possible, that you're really prioritizing um, the, the potential for somebody to be injured in, mm-hmm. in a car crash. But it's, yeah. it's fascinating a, yeah. how different people see your role and want you all to do, you know, kind of what works for them in any given moment. And I think that that is a tremendous level of pressure to to navigate. How do you talk about like the different things that you all are trained to do or capable of doing and then your priorities in any given instances with respect to public safety? Yeah, that's an excellent question because everyone has an expectation of what they think police should do. And that's usually based on your personal experience, what you saw on television, link faith, where someone told you this is what happened when when I got into a wreck or whatever. But the number one priority is to make sure no one's hurt. And that's not just physical hurt either. And and that's kind of harder to explain because when you go to an accident and no one is physically hurt, that doesn't mean that someone isn't hurt. And I have probably spent more time as a patrol officer consoling people who were in accidents than I did calling for an EMS to come there for them because it could be traumatic. They're thinking about their car. This is their only mode of transportation. It may not be their car and they figuring out how do I call someone and say, thank you for letting me borrow your car, but it's in three pieces. And uh, I've just seen people cry. I've seen people break down. I've seen them shake. I've seen them not be able to, to move the car off the side of the road. You got to get permission from them to do that because they can't drive just to the side of the road. So there's an emotional component as well. And I think that's one of the things about about this job that makes, you know, police officers special. A good cop knows that, that, you know, all injuries aren't visible to the eye and you know how to talk to people. You know how to use your procedural justice. You know how to let people um uh, demonstrate to you who they are, what they have going on, and to calm people down. I think that's a very important skill. I want to get into this conversation about domestic violence with you, and sure. we're running out of time here. But we do have uh, a third caller on the line, so we'll hear from them b- before we kind of talk about what we're doing to address uh, domestic violence yes. here in Madison. Yep. So I had a presentation yesterday from one of my captains who um, did a, a capstone for the Police Leadership Academy at the University of Chicago. And her capstone is so detailed and good, I'm going to implement it. And what it basically says is, um, number one, we need to specialize detectives. We need to work on um, a group of people who are specialized in how to um, to help uh, people who may be involved in domestic violence. Number uh, two, uh, we need to make sure that we don't re-traumatize people who are involved uh, in, in domestic violence. Number three, we need to get services to people quicker. We have uh, a, a very robust cadre of people who want to help from days to uh, other organizations, but we're slower at getting them information and we need to make sure that there's follow up. We need to explore what a family justice center looks like. So there's a one stop shop for people who may need things or who may want to escape uh, a dangerous situation. And then we need to wrap our arms around people in love and let them know. And this is this is everyone. That's not just the the victim. That's the suspect too. the person who may have had a bad day, whatever they may have done. What about that person? Is it mental health services this person needs? Is it something else that we can provide for that person to reduce the likelihood that those stressors or whatever that may have caused that incident 
doesn't happen again. And I think um, that was a really good plan uh, from one of my captains, and we're going to be working to implement that. But we can only do it with the help of our community and our city government. I think that's a, it's tremendously exciting for me to hear that the focus is on domestic violence in terms of violent crime in Madison, um, because for a long time, that has been the most common violent crime in Madison. I'm a, a domestic violence survivor, and as a domestic violence survivor, um, I think as, as a black woman who is in a relationship with another black person, a black man, one of the things that was very difficult for me in getting support from law enforcement was the idea that I was would be um, subjecting another black man to incarceration. Um, I, I think about you know how how this issue impacts black women specifically. I think about the black woman who was shot in Madison um, by by a partner more recently. Uh, I, I think that this is a, a dynamic that we as a, a community have to recognize and address, and recognize and address the impact it doesn't just have on that family, um, yes. but also on on our entire community and and how we you know how we take care of one another, how yeah. we take care of one another's kids, how we promote safety more generally. Along uh, uh, when I was younger, the the major focus when it came to violent crime was gang violence. Mm -hmm. um, have you all shifted away from gang violence towards domestic violence? Is there a little bit of a, a greater balance or investment in domestic violence in comparison to gang violence? No, I don't think we, we have shifted away from gang violence. Um, I think we have redefined what that means. Um, I sometimes uh, don't like the term gang violence because it's really group violence. Um, I don't think that you know, you necessarily have to have a hierarchy and a rules and bylaws to be like, I'm in a gang, you know, but if there are groups who are engaged in criminal activity, um, we want to make sure that we focus in on that. I sometimes think that, you know, we like to, to I mean, these kids today, they, they want to be a part of something, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone wants to. Be, so I don't really, you know, subscribe to, oh, you're in a gang, you're a bad person. So mm -hmm. I try to kind of stay away from that a little bit, which is why I repurposed our gang unit and we, we call them gang neighborhood crime abatement team. So your job exists to go in neighborhoods and abate crime, give people something to do, educate people more than just a gang group. I just, you know, I just didn't feel like that was the way to go. Um, but when it comes to domestic violence, I do think we could do better. I really do. And to say that we're shifting a focus would suggest that we had one in the first place. Mm. And so I think that we are getting smarter and more intelligent about the crimes that we see emerging. And this is one that last year we saw emerging. Um, and so we're working on that. You know, one of our, our homicides last year, uh, a baby was taken and that baby, you know, is out of country now with the father who we believe uh, murdered his partner, right? That affects mm. the entire community. And so, you know, that's my job to identify emerging trends, things that we may not have have done well before and look for areas of improvement. Now, I, I will tell you, we have some great detectives. I've been in multiple police agencies. We probably some of the best detectives or the best I've ever seen. They can work on that. But that's after something happens. Right. Mm -hmm. We need to put the same investment uh, in prevention and, and making sure that we're working together. But it doesn't work if we're not working together because I'm not in your home, you're not in my home, but there are a lot of other things that we can do to make sure that there are warning signs that we're working together. I, I'm so grateful to hear that you all are doing that work. We have a caller on the line. I just want to remind this person that we are getting towards the end of the hour, so we're going to give you one minute to ask your <laughs> question of Police Chief Barnes. Hello? Hi, how are you today? I am good. I actually called to just acknowledge uh, the chief's great work, um, congratulate him on this national uh, recognition. Uh, we are very appreciative of the work that Chief Barnes has done here, um, especially the empathy he has brought with him to his community work. And we, I, I really believe that this is beyond the breath of fresh air. Like the chief has brought something here for us to truly build on, support, get behind, and making our entire community a self safer and more welcoming place. And so, again, chief, congratulations on your national honor. Uh, I hope you uh, continue on with the great work you've done since you've been here. 
I appreciate that. Thank you. And, you know, the key word that you said there is community. Um, you know, I want I really want people in Madison to see our department as part of the community, as someone, you know, as a community, um, you know, partner and someone who wants to collaborate um, with others and realizing that we can't solve any problem by ourselves, but we can do it if we work together. So thank you for that. We have another caller who just wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about the CARES program. Okay. Uh, well, the CARES program is, is not managed by the police department. It is managed by the fire department. But I want to say, uh, and I've said this before, we support the initiative. Um, I think it's a great initiative. Our officers truly see the difference in the work that they are, do- that they are doing. Um, obviously, they're not 24-7, so we're still involved from time to time, and we have to serve papers and things of that nature. But I do want to talk about uh, something related, but closely, but not too related. Um, we have a, a third-party transport system that we put in place last year. We ran a pilot, and so we got some money to do that. And so the idea was, should police officers be taking people to the hospital when they have mental health uh, crises? And we believe that the answer is no. And so we were able to get some funding uh, from our mayor uh, to hire a third-party vendor that kind of looks like a mini kind of transportation system, not the back of a police car, not a shield, not, you know, re-traumatizing someone that quite frankly is having a medical issue. And we are doing those transports uh, from uh, the health systems here uh, up to Winnebago, and you don't have to have a police officer to do that. And so it's not CARES, but it is the way we're trying to contribute uh, to serving people better who are experiencing mental health crisis. I think a lot about like for myself, you know, what what would it be? What what'll it be like as an older person, as a retired person to look back at, at my career? How will I know whether or not I was f- effective and did a good job? What are the things that will stand out to me? Do you think about, you know, 20 years from now, how you will know that you rose to the occasion of of this moment? What are the the results you really want to see for this community? What is the work you really want to accomplish um, as you navigate your career here in Madison? Yeah, I actually do think about that because people ask me that all the time, uh, especially internally. Like, what do you what do you want your legacy to be? What are you trying to do? And I think for me, um, I want people to say that I advance policing in Madison. I allow people to think differently about problems. Uh, I was open to hearing different approaches to to crime. I thought that police officers were public servants first and law enforcement officers second, that I thought that if one person felt uh, that we weren't doing a good job, they were important enough to listen to. I want people to say that, you know, he lived downtown and the people who were unsheltered knew his name and they called each other by name. I want people to say that I worked uh, for him or I work in the police department when he was here and I got a chance to educate myself, go to conferences, learn what people were doing better. And I brought that back to the agency and that my voice was heard. And so overall that I advance policing in Madison and that our department is going in the right direction. I cannot thank you enough for joining me here today on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. Thank you for tuning in for my conversation with Police Chief Barnes.